Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, March 8th, 2023 reading of The Environment, consisting of articles from Mother Earth News, The Nature Conservancy, or the Sierra Club Magazine. My name is John. Today we'll read the following main articles, Aging Homesteaders, written by Bruce McElroy, Ski Resort Snowmaking Quandary by Jen Rose Smith, and School is in Session, Welcome to Indian Country 101, published by The Nature Conservancy. Let's get started with our first article, Aging Homesteaders. We have made improvements to our homestead over the years, but it still demands a great deal of work and yearly maintenance. This is a reader contribution by Bruce McElmurray. We've been homesteading in our current location in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Colorado at 9,800 foot elevation for almost a quarter of a century. When we started our homestead, we were much younger, enjoying good health. We still enjoy good health but are 24 and a half years older. Since our nearest neighbor is one mile distant, we live fairly isolated. We have made improvements to our homestead over the years, but it still demands a great deal of work and yearly maintenance. Our primary source of heat is a wood stove, so we require nine to 11 cords of firewood each winter to keep us warm. Our winters usually last seven plus months, so we burn a lot of firewood. We also average around 264 inches of snow each winter, and that requires removal so we can move about freely. This is a pretty severe climate to exist in, especially as we have become older. I'm in my 80s, and what I could do when I was 60 now requires more effort. Factor in what many of us seniors experience as we age, arthritis, which is painful and restricting. A good example is when I was younger, I would set aside two weeks to get in our next winter's firewood. Now it takes most of the summer working piecemeal. Strenuous work also requires a period of time to rest and recuperate between gathering firewood plus a different approach. The climate conditions are harsh at this elevation and the exterior of buildings get punished by wind and require more frequent attention than in less severe climates. That means we paint, seal, and stain the exterior of our building more often, which is less strenuous than getting firewood or shoveling snow. These tasks give our bodies rest between the more demanding tasks. Our choice of locations to homestead is demanding, but we enjoy the wild animals and the peace and quiet of where we are. We acquired a compact trailer to make heavy jobs easier. Having a front-end loader for the tractor helps spread gravel on our driveway and move heavy items that in the past were moved with a wheelbarrow, hand truck, or by hand. Moving dirt is much easier with the tractor than making multiple trips with a wheelbarrow or wrestling large rocks into position. We recently acquired a grappler for the tractor, which holds trees at a comfortable level to cut firewood to length instead of bending over to cut them on the ground. It can grab and move large rocks that previously had to be moved with a pry bar or by hand. Instead of loading piles of branches one at a time onto the trailer, the grappler can take large quantities and crush them into a bundle to facilitate getting hauled to the dump site. The physical demands have kept us healthier than if we lived a more sedentary lifestyle. 
We have had our share of injuries along the way, but the more active, physically demanding lifestyle has served us well. I had one such accident six years ago. I slipped on ice and heard a snap in my ankle. I finally gave in after walking on it for two days and saw a doctor. I sustained two fractures in that ankle, and had it not been for the insistence of a thoughtful wife, I would not have seen a doctor. Having a high pain threshold can be detrimental at times. I suspect most seniors have an assortment of aches and pains, and I am no exception. I tend to ignore the pain and continue my daily activity. Across-the-counter pain medication, heating pads, ice packs, and analgesic salves work to get me through those painful times. Our medical facilities are worthy of our local population, but not like we would find in a more populated area. Treatment is 52 miles away. When I wonder if all the demands of a homestead are worth it, I see those snowflakes gently falling outside and the trees adorned in white coupled with our mountain views, all of which does make it worthwhile. We feel blessed every day living in such a gorgeous place. The silence of the snow and frequent visits from the multitude of birds and wild animals are very special to us. When we reach that senior age, it is important that we work smarter and not harder. When I was younger, I was able to clear two to three feet of snow in a couple of days, but now I tackle it over longer periods interspersed with rest periods. Homesteading at this elevation is very hard, especially when you reach senior age. It is hard and often very painful, but by working smart, most healthy seniors can handle it. I realize that our homestead may be more extreme than some other homesteads, but if Carol and I can still do it, that should be a clear indication that other seniors could also, depending on their level of physical ability. Following my years in the military, I was mostly behind a desk and had a semi-sedentary lifestyle. Taking a piece of raw land and converting it into a comfortable homestead was a radical change for me. The only thing in my life that ever remotely compares to this homesteading lifestyle was when I was in my teens and was a newspaper boy. I would carry several canvas bags of newspapers door to door in snow, rain, or stifling sun seven days a week. 125 customers would get their daily newspaper on their porch dry and readable. I attribute that phase of my life as preparation for my current lifestyle. Homesteading is possible for seniors, and Carol and I are proof that it can still be done. To learn more about Bruce and Carol and their remote homesteading lifestyle, visit their blog site. Bruce and Carol live in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of South Colorado with their two canine companions in a small cabin they heat with a wood stove. Their neighbors, with whom they live in harmony, consist of wild animals such as bears, mountain lions, coyotes, bobcats, deer, and elk. For more on the McElmurrays, visit their blog site, brucecarolcabin.blogspot.com. Our next article this afternoon from the Sierra Club Magazine, Ski Resort Snowmaking Quandary. Mild winters and energy-intensive snowmaking are in a positive feedback loop. This article was written by Jen Rose Smith. By the third week of January this year, not a single inch of natural snow had whitened the ski slopes of Massanutten Resort in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains. The nor'easterns that brought big snowfall in past decades now seem to be passing well to Massanutten's north, says Jesse Reist, the resort snowmaking manager. 
We've been more and more on the rain side of the snow rain line, Rice says. This year, we've gotten an ice storm, a sleet storm, then a lot of rain. With no blizzards to kickstart the season, Massa Newton relies on snowmaking, producing artificial snow by forcing water and pressurized air through snow guns. This year in particular, snow guns have been working overtime to keep the ski runs open. However, as temperatures rise, the efficiency of the snowmaking plummets. While it's relatively easy to make snow in zero-degree weather, when temperatures hover around freezing, the process becomes far more energy-intensive. We overcome warmer temperatures with more horsepower, Rice says. It's a positive feedback loop. As the climate crisis brings milder winter weather to many places, resorts amp up greenhouse gas-producing snowmaking efforts. That's just part of the broader predicament facing people who love to play on snow. As the world gets warmer, the main resource upon which skiing relies is going away, says Madeline Orr, a sports ecologist at Lowborough University, London's Institute of Sport Business. This has implications all over the place in terms of how we replace that resource. To stay afloat, most resorts need to achieve 100 skiable days, Orr says. Ski areas in the European Alps have been leading the way when it comes to creative solutions to snow shortages, perhaps because of the daunting climate future they face. Even low emissions projections suggest a third of the region's 600-plus ski areas will close by 2080. Efforts to keep runs open can carry a heavy environmental footprint. For years, French resorts have harvested snow from high altitudes to cover lower altitude runs, a process that strips already melting glaciers of critical insulation, Orr says. Facing a historically warm season, Swiss ski areas in Gestat recently sent helicopters to shuttle back payloads of snow, drawing criticism for their carbon-intensive approach. Italian ski resorts have covered snow with giant plastic tarps to protect the slopes from the sun's snow-melting rays. Plastic mats laid down directly on ski runs can offer year-round skiing and even be equipped with coolant to help preserve any natural snow that falls on top. We're talking about very energy-intensive, Orr says. Other strategies, however, offer glimmers of hope, Orr says, pointing to wind fences that could reduce snowmelt on exposed slopes. Since 2019, the nonprofit Craftsbury Outdoor Center in northern Vermont, one of the premier cross-country ski areas in the United States, has been making snow during the frigid February weeks when snow guns are most efficient, piling it into a pit, then covering the pile with wood chips that help prevent melting. Solar installations power some 60% of Craftbury's electric use, and diesel generators used to supplement snowmaking are equipped with heat recovery to warm the center's dormitories, lodge, and cafeteria. In autumn, Craftsbury spreads the cached snow from the prior winter onto trails to create a skiable surface. The amazing thing is, it's ridiculously simple technology. I think about ice houses 100 years ago, says Paul Bernheim, a professor at the University of Vermont. We're doing nothing differently. There's more promising news, too. Despite warming conditions and the increased need for snowmaking at ski resorts across the globe, the tools for making snow are in fact getting better. 
The last decade has seen a large shift in terms of energy efficiency, the result of equipment improvement in that time span, says Jonathan Thibault, a senior engineer and snowmaking expert at the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation, a sustainable energy nonprofit that works with ski areas around the country to green their operations. For starters, technological improvements have made snow guns about 25% more efficient, Thibault says, largely by reducing their need for compressed air. The equipment is expensive, but many ski resorts are investing in energy-efficient upgrades. Vermont Energy Investment Corporation has consulted on 747 energy efficiency projects at ski areas around the country, amounting to an estimated lifetime reduction of greenhouse gases with a warming potential equivalent to 978,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide, and most of that reduction can be attributed to better snow guns. The National Ski Areas Association, NSAA, is helping fund the transformation. For instance, in 2022, it awarded Massanutten Resort $30,000 as part of its Sustainable Slopes Grant Program, which offers money to replace old equipment with new, efficient HKD snowmakers. Still, no one I spoke with for this story sees snowmaking as a tool that will preserve skiing as we've known it in the past decades. Sliding down mountains is a kind of human play that needs just right weather conditions, and our changing climate is making it harder to find those conditions. Like dragging a giant tarp across an alpine ski hill, making snow is more stopgap than solution. Snowmaking is a fantastic operational tool, says Adrian Isaac, the NSAA's Director of Marketing and Communications. There's going to come a point where we can't do more if emissions are allowed to go unchecked. We're on this trajectory. Technology can only take us so far. At a certain point, it just becomes too warm. Additional National Ski Area Association's sustainability efforts include the Climate Challenge Program targeting the ski industry's overall greenhouse gas emissions. Since the program's creation 11 years ago, the NSAA estimates that Climate Challenge has reduced emissions by 126,000 metric tons of CO2 equivalent. A growing number of resorts, including Massanutten, which is a climate challenge participant, are installing solar panels and wind turbines to help power resort facilities. Using solar to run snow guns is tricky, as snowmaking usually happens at night. The ski industry behemoth, Vail Resorts, has committed to zero net emissions by 2030, combining overall energy use reductions with investments in renewables and carbon offsets. But Isaac also points to a growing understanding in the ski industry that climate change poses an existential threat and that solutions thus must be system-wide. The NSAA encourages climate challenge participants to bring the fight to Congress, attend government hearings, and lobby utility providers to increase clean and renewable energy sources. We are fighting for our own survival as an industry and also for the survival of our communities and for outdoor recreation in general, Isaac says. It goes way beyond skiing. This is a human issue. Our third made article is titled, School is in Session. Welcome to Indian Country 101. This was contributed by the Nature Conservancy staff. The Indian Country 101 courses developed by the Whitener Group, TWG, a tribally owned firm, and the Nature Conservancy, TNC, will likely feel different than other diversity, equity, and inclusion training courses people have taken, and that is part of the point. 
The main objective of the Indian Country Training Series is stated simply to help you offend native people 50% less and engage with tribes 25% more effectively. Perhaps this feels like a low standard, but as the Nature Conservancy's North America Director Jan Gledding states, we know one of the largest barriers to non-tribal organizations partnering with tribes is the amount of preemptive education tribal leaders and representatives must provide non-native leaders about tribal sovereignty, fundamentals of being a tribal nation, basic terminology, and customs in order to move forward with complex negotiations. Indian Country 101 is one way organizations like the Nature Conservancy can step up to begin to ease that burden. What began as a six-month project turned into a multi-year endeavor, sifting and curating content to be robust, comprehensive, and in acknowledgment of the diversity of Indian country itself, a daunting assignment, and a likely reason why a training like this doesn't already exist. The courses weave together authentic commentaries while always keeping native voices at the forefront. Narrated by Jennifer Whitener Ulrich, a first-generation descendant of the Swaxon Island tribe who grew up at her tribe and has worked in Indian country her entire career. The courses are peppered with her snarky commentary, thoughts, and experiences on the complex world of tribal governments and issues like native identity. She is relatable, doesn't pull too many punches, and reveals her own insecurities when working in native spaces. Jennifer is joined by her father, who she has labeled the Indian country jack-of-all-trades, Bob Whitener, along with her Indian law professor uncle, Ron Whitener, both of whom are enrolled members of the Squaxin Island tribe and have had long careers in Indian country. As an MBA, MPA, and JD, respectively, the trio each bring a deep well of personal experience, relationship experience, and professional experience. Jennifer is the first to comment. The most engaging part of the training is actually the multitude of native scholars, musicians, authors, beaters, fry bread truck operators, comedians, and more woven throughout the entire curriculum. The Nature Conservancy is appreciative of the energy, heart, snark-swathed insight, and dedication that Jennifer Whitener Ulrich and the Whitener Group have offered, says Puget Sound Conservation Director Jesse Israel. I believe the Indian Country training courses can truly help conservation organizations like ours, along with government agencies and private companies, to do better, work more effectively with tribes. One of the training's unique aspects is its e-learning platform. Rather than present the course through a live or recorded webinar format with a talking head or two, the course can be taken at your own pace that allows participants to engage effectively with the material. Filled with people and organizations to know, quick reference definitions, engagement tips, and things not to say, and steeped in a multitude of external resources, Indian Country 101 is a reference guide and training rolled into one, and it is always at your fingertips to revisit. And while the training landing page states explicitly that you will not walk away with a certification, it does guarantee that, if you pay attention, you will have a much better chance at not sticking your foot in your mouth. The tuition-free course is available now.
This training is being delivered on TNC's conservation training platform, an open and free learning community that offers conservation-based training materials from the Nature Conservancy and our partner organizations with more than 400 hours of free online courses, many in multiple languages. Visit the Nature Conservancy's Indian Country 101 training webpage to find out more about this training or hear what people are already saying about it. Another article from the Nature Conservancy, Wildfire Resilience Roadmap Charts a Course for Mitigating Wildfire Risk, contributed by Jay Lee. Aspen Institute and the Nature Conservancy released today the Roadmap for Wildfire Resilience, Solutions for a Paradigm Shift, a problem identification and solutions document that will help direct federal and other resources towards addressing the wildfire crisis. The Nature Conservancy will debut the roadmap at a briefing on Capitol Hill March 8th. Aspen Institute will cite the release of the roadmap at Aspen Ideas Climate in Miami Beach, Florida, March 6th through 9th. The roadmap is a product of a partnership begun in 2021 between the Nature Conservancy and the Aspen Institute to advocate for a paradigm shift in approaching and funding solutions to the wildfire crisis in the American West. It is a companion piece to the Nature Conservancy's 2021 Wildfire Resilience Funding Report. Focusing on two aspects of the Wildfire Leadership Council's National Cohesive Wildland Fire Management Strategy, Fire Adapted Communities and Resilient Landscapes, the roadmap brings together lessons from decades of policy and practice with forward-thinking approaches that incorporate new technology and knowledge. It was developed over the course of a year, five regional stakeholder roundtables, and a summit which collectively solicited professional input from over 250 experts in forest and fire management, representing federal, state, local, and tribal nation authorities, and private sector interests in forest products, insurance, and finance. The roadmap is comprised of eight key themes, landscape scale and outcome driven, controlled burning, resilient communities and landscapes, forest products, partnerships, finance and insurance, equity and access, recover for resilience, and technology and innovation. It identifies problems and associated policy solutions requiring actions from Congress, the executive branch, and partners like states, tribal nations, NGOs, and others. The roadmap also integrates the five cross-cutting themes of workforce capacity, tribal nation partnerships, and ecological knowledge, community capacity and collaboration, natural climate solutions, and communications, highlighting the importance of social, economic, and ecological strategies. For decades, the wildfire season in the West was predictable. This is no longer the case as the climate crisis fuels more intense and more destructive fires. As drought, a century of fire suppression, and inadequate funding for forest health continues to contribute to uncharacteristic wildfire seasons, we need different solutions, said Darcy Vetter, Global Head, Policy and Government Relations for the Nature Conservancy. This roadmap provides those solutions to the federal government and partners and provides opportunities to apply the considerable resources available in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and Inflation Reduction Act and a once-in-a-generation investment in forest and rangeland health, community safety, and workforce development. 
The rising cost and prevalence of wildfires and droughts, especially in the West, has broadened the American public's understanding and shown the urgent demand for resiliency solutions that are not only rooted in science and evidence-based practices, but also center equitable accessibility and partnership, said Greg Gershony, Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Energy and Environment Program. To protect communities from the impacts of climate change, our ability to collectively embrace new strategies will require trust and a willingness to invest in an all-of-society approach to problem-solving. This roadmap is a perfect example of what collective investment and strength and trust could look like. Recent nationwide public opinion research confirmed that a vast majority of voters recognize the threat of wildfire and support federal spending to address the issue. Four of five voters support increased federal investment to reduce the threat and intensity of wildfires proactively. Wildfires and droughts are top-tier concerns for American voters, just behind inflation, housing, and government waste. And this roadmap aims to build on public concern to drive solutions. Thank you for joining us for today's reading of The Environment, articles from the Sierra Club magazine, The Nature Conservancy magazine, and Mother Earth News. My name is John. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Think Change. Talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. Made possible through support from PASCO, Personal Assistance Services of Colorado, Developmental Pathways, CCDC, Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, the Ark of Aurora, and the Ark of the Pikes Peak Region. Think Change Talks. Bias, noun, prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person, or group compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. Breaking the Barrier of Disability Bias, a series of different perspectives. Fran. Talking about one's uh, disabilities, it's a half a dozen of one, half a dozen of the other. Because of the bias, I can't talk about my all my disabilities because people judge you don't respect you, uh, make you feel like less than a person. Uh, that's what happens when you disclose your disabilities if they're not visible. And that happens to people with visible disabilities. You know, they're trampled on. They're not respected. I am disabled and I know other people that are disabled and family members, friends, and so forth. I worry about my friends that are out late at night in wheelchairs or walking, and there's issues with walking and it's dark. Um, 
I've had several friends uh, uh, have been attacked. Uh, now one kid carries a gun because he's been mugged four times. And he's in a wheelchair. And, um, and he had two dogs with him when this happened. Two service dogs. And nice kid, great kid. Since I don't look disabled, I, the bias changes. Oh, well, you're not disabled, you're just slow. You're just not trying. Um, you don't care. I believe bias is a fear factor. People are biased when they don't understand something um, or afraid, unknowing. I'm a non-legal advocate for Colorado Cross Disability Coalition and a volunteer lobbyist for CCDC. I get up in the morning, I go down to the Capitol, read the bills for the day. Um, it's important to show up. So, I show up. It only takes one person. It's so interesting now since there's new people and you don't know people and it's difficult sometimes. But I have a really good um, right hand and his name is Simba, my mobility dog. So he introduces me to people. He opens the doors for me almost sometimes. But they don't, they think I'm his trainer. They don't think he's my dog. Oh, he does. He's a great mobility dog. To get rid of one's disability bias, if we love them and educate them and have a conversation about the bias, that might start to turn the bias around. And in the disabled community, love ourselves and each other that will spread out into the world, which is something that I would be just ecstatic about. Josh. So my, my plan was never to own my own business. When I got laid off, I was 28, 29 years old. And I was beginning to run into the issues of aging with disability. I know, you know, that sounds crazy to say at 20, 29 years old, I was already running into that. My, my knob fell off my chair one day and I had lost in some snow. And I was like, yeah, I got a mill, I can figure out how to make one of these. And so I made my own aluminum knob. And so I had my own custom knob. And then one of my friends saw it and he's like, well, I, I got spastic CP and I pull my knob off my chair all the time. Like, can you make me one? 
And so I made him one, and he could still pull that one off. So I made him a better one that held on stronger. And that's the basis of the design I still sell today, is, is the one with the, you know, the set screws for him. Um, I had a phone with a bad battery, and I couldn't afford a new phone. So I was like, well, I can make a way to charge that off the batteries on the chair. I'm sitting on batteries. Like, I've got tons of power in my chair. Why don't I just charge my cell phone off my wheelchair? And so I built a charger. So I thought I was just building one for myself. Again, run into people and they're like, hey, can you make me one? Hey, can you make me one? I realized, okay, there's people who want these. So turn that into a product. Um, with the beauty of the internet, you, you can you know, sell it. You can sell on your own website. You can sell through eBay, Amazon, Etsy. Like there's so many options. And for me, the best part about having my own business is the flexibility. It, it's a very good option for a lot of us because our lives are not real constant. There's a lot of change. Like the one thing that's constant is the change. And it allows you to have control over things that you might not otherwise have control over um, in, in a traditional job. Even today, I'm like, you know, it, it just baffles me that a lot of people actually didn't think that after I was paralyzed that college would be an option. Like, there was absolutely no reason college shouldn't be an option. There was no reason employment shouldn't be an option. Actual ability-wise, there was no reason I couldn't work. So disability bias comes up in a lot of different ways. Um, and it can be negative and it can be positive. Um, I, again, going back to when I was younger, I just call it playing the cripple card. You know, sometimes you play the cripple card and that's what gets you the front row seating or that gets you to the front of the line. Um, turns out there's actually a better word for it, it's accommodation. Um, that's really what it is. But when you're a kid, you don't really understand that. Even as a young adult, I didn't really understand that, that I was, there was accommodations. There was you know, accommodations at school, there was accommodations in public events, there was accommodations at work. But it can also come across in a negative way and if you don't know how to handle it, it, it can go really wrong. I mean, you would expect 30 years out of the ADA, everyone would know the law, not really the case. If somebody you know looks at my girlfriend and says, what will he have for dinner at a restaurant? That's a whole different story. That is, you know, much more offensive to me, and, and I tend to not react very well. And when things like that happen to you constantly in life, it, you start to get a blurred line on whether or not it, it is normal, and, and you should just brush it off, or if you should react. And that doesn't make it right, that doesn't make it okay, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a conversation again, once my food's on the table and I can't mess with it, about, hey, like, this is handled really poorly and, like, you should respect people. Um, but you also have to get through life. And, and if you let every one of those things bother you to the point where you leave that restaurant or you don't shop at that store anymore, the next thing you know, there's no restaurants you can go to, no stores you can shop at. Every, every one of those instances of bias is an opportunity to educate somebody, and maybe that doesn't make things better for you. It isn't gonna make that whatever they did go away, but maybe the next person that comes in won't have the same thing happen to them. Um, so that's kind of over the years. I mean, I've, I've never been paralyzed for 20 years. Um, I you know, grew up with, with having my, my gippy foot. It's just always been a part of my life, and so 
there's just always opportunities within whatever the issue is. Whenever, whenever there's, there's a, a problem, there's also an opportunity. But give the person the opportunity first. Don't assume about them. And most people take that well. Most people really do want to do the right thing. They just don't always know what the right thing is. Mallory. What do I do that challenges the bias of people with disabilities? Everything. Literally everything. I had a very normal like upbringing. Um, when I was growing up, my um, experience, so first of all, my disability is actually related. It's a secondary um, outcome of my rare genetic disorder that I have. So um, there was basically medical error when I was getting treated for my condition when I was younger, which resulted in um, joint issues and um, my height being stunted at three foot nine. So it was something that sort of came along um, as a result of other things. But as I was growing up, my family really made every effort to make sure I was included. I went to um, school with all my peers. I went to high school, I went to college. Um, when I was younger, I took dance, I did theater, and none of that was segregated. It was all just either with my high school or with my community. And we encouraged slash made them figure it out. You know, I didn't do these, like, I didn't go to a special prom, I didn't go to a special dance class, I did everything and my peers just accommodated and accepted me and that sort of paved the way for the way that I live my life as an adult. I expect to be treated equally and if I'm not then we deal with it as those incidences arise. Disability bias to me is a perspective or thought about the population of individuals with disabilities, whether that's positive, negative, just a general thought about a certain group of people. I think it's it's kind of difficult sometimes to, to when you feel those things where you know you're being discriminated against, but it, no one's ever going to come right out and blatantly say it. I think a big problem um, that we've experienced personally is in, in terms of housing. Um, there are not there's not enough accessible, affordable housing. Um, we, for example, we moved uh, to Denver from the Boston area and I went to grad school um, at Boston University and we had such a difficult time finding accessible housing. Um, I thought I was gonna have to defer my educational opportunity. Um, the housing that was on campus was not big enough for two people. Um, and then our options were basically to live in the suburbs, live in a nursing home or not move to the city um, basically and you know we wanted to be downtown we wanted to be near the university and we basically ended up living in um, a new a brand new luxury building and basically paying for it on grad school loans because it was the only way we could find housing and of course the excuse is oh it's an old city it's an old building um, there are a lot of ADA loopholes um, that buildings and uh, you know physical structures will use and say, oh, we're grandfathered in or this or that. And so it's really um, a place where I would like to see improvement. Newer um, construction is better in terms of accessibility, um, but 
when you're looking for housing that's affordable or you know you're trying to get those accommodations it can often feel like there's much more blatant discrimination just because you don't have the same options that everybody else may when they're looking for exactly what you're looking for. I think my encounters with bias have probably made me a much stronger advocate um, whether I want to be or not. If nobody can tell me how to do this, I'm going to have to do it so that I can tell other people how to do it. I've gotten involved in my neighborhood organization um, to advocate for um, pedestrian safety and make it safer for people with mobility devices to get around the city of Denver, specifically the area of Uptown. Slowly, slowly moving towards inclusion, um, but it needs to be just part of the process. It can't be an afterthought. It can't be like, you know, oh, well, what does this one person need to participate, making a big to do about it? It needs to just be that activities are planned to include everybody. Buildings are constructed to include everybody. The, the healthcare system is built to support everybody to maintain their health, to live their best life, to be able to work and participate in their community. And I think until we politically and systematically break down those barriers, we still have a long way to go. Lloyd. I'm Lloyd Lewis, and my connection to disability started with the birth of my son, Kennedy, in 2003. Kennedy has Down syndrome. We have had challenges along the way, as all parents do, as all kids do with disabilities. And for me, it's, it's a continuing mission and purpose to create the best life for my son and others that we can. Disability bias is non-inclusion, and it's non-support of programs that support people with intellectual disabilities. Prior to my tenure, we had maybe 10 employees with intellectual disabilities, and I think my predecessors felt that it would be, uh, it would be disruptive to the overall uh, success of our company, that it would be difficult to do, that it would be costly to do, and, um, you know, I put it in intentionally as an employment program, and the company has never been more successful. Uh, we have tripled revenue, increased by five-fold funding for our mission to support the art chapters, and I attribute half of that success to our employment program for people with intellectual disabilities. When people work side-by-side -side with people with intellectual disabilities, they know they're working for more than just a paycheck. They're no, they know that they're working to make a difference. And I think they're inspired by working people with intellectual disabilities. And I think that they really help overall morale in the company. And I would do it at any company, not just the art thrift stores. That's one of the first things I did uh, to challenge bias uh, against people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, I chair a number of disability boards. I advocate. Uh, with the legislature, with uh, cabinet members, with other people in political life that can make a difference. I think uh, people need to be aware of who people with intellectual disabilities really are. They need to meet people with intellectual disabilities, they need to employ people with intellectual disabilities, they need to have them in their communities, they need to have them in inclusive classrooms, and you know, with awareness, with inclusion, 
that makes a tremendous difference in the lives of people. But with all of the advances that we've made, there, there is still disability bias. Uh, there's an 80% unemployment rate for people with disabilities. 80% uh, of women with disabilities will be abused, 40% multiple times, 40% of men. There's a lack of housing. There's a lack of funding for people with disabilities. Uh, Colorado has the eighth highest per capita income. And we rank like 48th in funding for people with disabilities. I am constantly uh, trying to make a difference for people like my son and our employees with disabilities. Jose. So my IQ is 186. Uh, after 187, anyone who has more than 87, to, I mean to 287, is considered a measure of genius. So I had a really easy time learning languages, learning computer languages, learning laws, learning bills, you know, memorizing things. And that's why I felt it was my obligation to help, to use my privilege to help others. I was born with a disability, uh, CP, cerebral palsy, which includes problems moving, and when I was a kid, I, I also had problems speaking. From the time I was a kid, I always saw, whenever I went out, how people would stare at me. That's almost normal. It's curiosity, right? In, in my country, you didn't see a lot of people with disabilities out in the streets. But, uh, after I was growing up and I started to have social interactions and work-related stuff and school-related stuff, I realized that it was not only the staring, it was also the way they treated me. A few years after being here in the United States and getting my papers in order and all that, uh, I truly started my professional life. And that's when I start to utilize more seriously concepts like disability bias and what that means. And I realized that I even hide myself. Like I had discrimination against myself. And I, I found that when I was a teenager, I used to hate myself. I wasn't accepting myself. Why? Because I was reflecting that into what others, people, other people saw in me. They didn't see a normal guy. They didn't see a full man. They saw a cripple, a guy in a wheelchair that is not capable of anything, not even talking, not even having love, not even nothing. Having a job, doing good school, nothing. What I, I knew that I was doing perfect in school, better than most, that I was professionally able to do even more than other people, and that my disability actually gave me the empathy to understand other people's unique situations. So, 
little by little, I understood that discrimination, racism, disability bias are all the same. It's, it's being afraid of what's different. And, not under, and because of that, you don't understand it. But you're afraid. So I was afraid of myself. I was afraid of being alone. I was afraid of being rejected by most people. Because I was. So I realized that outside, I was mostly the weird guy that is sitting in a wheelchair. That is disability bias. And that most of the institutionalized medical system and all that wants me to be in a nursing home, wants me to not be active, wants me to be dirty poor in order to have the benefits that I need, things like that. And I said, hell no. I don't come from where I come from to give up now. Don't be afraid of asking, can you do this or can you not? What do you think you can do? We'll tell you. We'll tell you. We'll tell you what to, what to do to, to help us. To help us be, have a job, to help us participate in events, to help us coordinate things, to help us change laws. We have another perspective. We have the perspective of someone who has a disability. It's a very unique perspective. So disability, bias, bias. There is, but we're gonna fight and keep fighting against it. They know I'm not gonna take a punch sitting. That's how I fight disability bias. I show them that I am better, that I can't be better, that my disability doesn't hold me back. Actually, it gives me a really big, big push. If you feel that you or a loved one may have faced discrimination, contact your local Office of Civil Rights for resources and support. Think Change. Talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.